Welcome to the We Are All Needed podcast, a space where we together will inspire people to do something good. This podcast is for all of us that care. We care about how we spend our days, how we show up for each other and for the planet. I'm your host, Alexander Nash. I am many things as we all are, but the things I most proudly identify with are I'm an entrepreneur, a mother, business coach, athlete, and meditation teacher. I've roamed the impact startup world for over 15 years now, and I feel like it is time to share the stories of so many fascinating people doing so many incredible things. Together with the guests on this show, we will provide inspiration that no act is too small and that we are all needed. Let's dive in to this week's episode. Today I'm welcoming Wei Yo to the podcast. Wei has worked internationally and in his home country, Australia, in the social impact space for close to two decades. He is the founder of OIC Cambodia, an initiative that aims to establish speech therapy as a profession in Cambodia. He has a BA in physiotherapy from the University of Sydney and an MA in development studies from the University of New South Wales. He has volunteered trying to help people with disabilities in Vietnam, interned in India, studied Mandarin in Beijing and milked yorks in Mongolia. He started OIC in 2013 and handed over leadership to a local Cambodian team in 2017. He has since co-founded Umba, a social enterprise bridging the gap for rural Australians to access allied health services. In this conversation, we talk about growing up in a mixed household, things you can do to try and separate yourself from your work identity. And we dig really deep into how, especially in an international charity context, it is very important not only to act from emotion and compassion, but rather take a moment to let the rational side catch up. Hi, uh, Wei, uh, and welcome to the We Are All Needed podcast. It is really Thanks. lovely to have you here and for you to take the time. Thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, on this podcast, I always like to start off with a question that kind of lands us right on topic and I guess where our hearts belong. So my question to you is like, if you got to view the future in the most idealistic way, you could make pretend whatever, uh, what would it look like to you? Mm. Um, I think there's two parts to the answer. It's a really good question. The first is from the heart and the second part's from the head. So the first part of the answer would be that uh, inequalities were righted, I guess, in, a, in that's a very short summary. But people who have historically been not in positions of power were able to have power and agency. And then, of course, unfortunately, those who have historically had power would have to give up some of their power so that that was to happen. And the second part, which is the head answer, would be that our pathway to doing that was through using rational thoughts and critical discourse and through um, questioning how to help people best as opposed to only purely following what our heart tells us to do. That's really interesting. I like that answer. Hmm. All right. So in a few sentences, uh, could you explain a little bit to us um, who you are, 
where you're at and what you do. Sure. Well, physically, I'm in Sydney, Australia at the moment. Um, my background is I am uh, the children of migrants from Malaysia to Sydney, and my great-grandparents migrated from China to Malaysia. And one of the things I was really aware of growing up is a huge amount of sacrifice that's occurred for me to be born in this incredible country that I'm very lucky to live in. And so on the back of that, I grew up in a very comfortable childhood and went to a lovely uh, private school, a boys' school, actually, and managed to get out of the bubble after I studied physiotherapy and worked for a couple of years as a physiotherapist and realized that I wasn't really interested in doing that job. I took two years to travel through Asia, and it's a very cliched kind of story to a certain extent because I, in inverted commas, found myself. Yeah. But I, I guess what I found was that the world wasn't, was a lot bigger than the bubble that I'd grown up in. And there were people living lives that were very different to what I had lived. And so I started this journey of wanting to help people. And I did six months volunteering in an orphanage in Vietnam. Back at that time, it wasn't really frowned upon to do orphanage volunteerism. And I remember that there was a typhoon that came through the town, lifted the roof off the orphanage, and it was a really incredible experience because what I mostly felt was this feeling of not belonging and, and not really having the tools to help. Um, I didn't have a child protection check. I was there alone with children all the time, and it was just not a very good situation to be in. So after that, I came back to Australia and I studied international development, and now in my late 20s, and then I got a job working in China with a big charity. And that's when I thought I was on the pathway to working for the WHO or the UN and doing something at that level until I realized that, that a lot of this stuff, a lot of this work wasn't really something that I identified with because it, it seemed like a lot of that work was really about maintaining the status quo yeah. and about keeping things moving and about addressing the symptoms, not really solving a problem and making it go away. Um, and then sort of by, by chance, I ended up in Cambodia where I heard about the lack of speech therapy. So speech therapy being something to help people with communication and swallowing problems. And the fact that there was not one speech therapist in the whole country. I started a charity with a specific end goal, which I'm sure we'll go into. And then I came back to Australia and started a social enterprise with two other people recently that works on giving people in rural Australia access to speech and occupational therapy online. And I guess the last thing to think about and the reason why we connected is I wrote a book uh, which got published a couple of months ago called Redundant Charities, which looks into successful charities making themselves redundant. Yeah, big congrats on the book. That's a huge accomplishment in itself. It is. It's been a lot of work. <laughs> what, uh, what was the theme of the organization you worked for in China? It was in disability. So I... You know, and th this is the thing, when you tell these kind of stories, you recognize that the work is really important. And going back to the first answer about having the head and the heart, that's why I think that having the heart alone is not enough because all of these bits of work that charities and social impact businesses and so forth do, they're all good causes. We were working uh, with the uh, Chinese government. Um, a lot of the children who were in orphanages that were Chinese government run, had disability up to over 90%, they reckon. And um, yet none of the people working in those orphanages had a lot of training in disability. And yeah. so our job was to go in and write a curriculum for them. Um, but it was very clear pretty much from day one that the government didn't really want us there. 
and they didn't really respect the way in which we went about our work. And the work that had been done before I arrived really wasn't very effective. And so my job was to help them make it look like the work was effective on paper in order to them, for them to get more funding, yeah. which is part of that maintaining the status quo. It's really interesting because when I was thinking about how to prepare for our conversation, I thought on a surface level, it's interesting because my podcast is all about, you know, we can all do something and like all these little things like together um, can do something great. And if you look at it in one way, it's almost like the opposite of what you are trying to promote, um, which is which is not true, I think, because what I'm also always trying to speak of, which is something that came up in a recent conversation as well, is the difference between intentions and outcomes. And I think having good intentions obviously is not a bad thing, but it's very self-centered. Whereas thinking about outcomes requires some sort of I don't know, empathy or compassion or like knowing the other person, which is much more complicated. So it's easier to, for the big organizations to write a check as opposed to actually go somewhere and investigate and, you know, look into the systems. Um, what would you say to that, you know, with your thesis of how you're thinking and for people that maybe want to do something and maybe want to do something small, hmm. what would be your take on that? Well, I, I do think that every little bit helps. So what you said is absolutely correct, that there is action, there are actions, sorry, that we can take that are, are small in scale, but are very effective in the long run. And we have to take those actions. But I also do think that good intentions are not enough. And there was actually a blog a number of years ago with that actual title, not sure if it's still around or not. Um, when we see a problem, we are moved to act by compassion and emotion, and that's part of being human. But what we decide to do next, there's a little moment there in between that reaction to the action that is really important. And that's where I think the rational side of our being has to come in yeah. because it can't simply be about doing something for the sake of something right. and particularly when we talk about an international context and there's actually a chapter in my book called something is better than nothing yeah. there is this bit of a mindset that you know well in places like cambodia they don't have facilities like we do in australia so something's better than nothing isn't it but the something is better than nothing mentality means that change doesn't really occur yeah. again the status quo is essentially maintained and Sometimes that something is nothing is based on racism as well, I think. Yeah. You know, the idea that you can, in another country, walk into an orphanage and pick up a child. Yeah. Um, you would never do that in any Western country ever. Yeah. So yeah. there's a certain mentality that allows that in those countries because of this mistake, I believe, or this, yeah, this idea that's not correct. So I think it is really important that we take action, but I do think it's really important that we think about what the right action is. And sometimes the action can actually either be harmful or just as bad, not really move the dial, just be something that's just temporary. And as you said, often more about making ourselves feel better. Yeah. That's a really interesting observation because I was on a trip in a developing country uh, not too long ago. 
and they gave us uh, all these instructions like how to act when we went into all these villages and that was one of the things that they said remember that if you were like walking down the streets and you passed the school or something you wouldn't just randomly pick up your camera and start taking pictures yes and when they put it like that you're like of course you wouldn't but you see these pictures everywhere Mm. and it's such it's such odd behavior yeah yeah and 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 that's you know a lot of people who are in those situations it's really great that they told you that because it is easy, I think, for tourists or people who are not involved in this day-to-day to forget that. Yeah. You know, it's just part and parcel. We're not expecting them to think about those sorts of things. But going back to the book, I think that's one of the the most beautiful parts of the book so far has been people that have picked it up who don't work in development or don't work in charities and have gotten something really um, significant out of it and been able to think, oh, okay, actually, I never really thought about it like that. So I think if we can you know, spread the message on how to do things better yeah. and how to do things more effectively, then it's worth the effort. Yeah. And how did you know, how did you know that this was your path to take? Did you always know you talked a little bit about your parents, you know, your upbringing, but how did you know that this was it? I mean, the real, the real story is kind of hilarious in retrospect, but my name Wei in Chinese actually means great and then the second part of my name, which is Ming, which is the same middle name that all my siblings have, my two brothers, means clear. So I went to China as an adult and I asked someone there, what does that name mean you put it together? And he said, clearly the greatest. And I remember that as a child having this, I mean, so I was told that as an adult, but all my life as a young boy all the way through, there was kind of this idea. And um, I remember, you know, I mean, no pressure or anything, but I remember thinking as a kid, you know, oh, I'm going to do something that's going to change the world and it's going to like, I'll either invent something really amazing or I'll like create something that's going to help millions of people. And I had this kind of pressure from the back of my head put on there. I mean, let alone all those like stereotypes about Asian parenting, which are generally quite true. Yeah. But um, I always, I always thought that there was something that I was going to do, but it was always in my opinion going to be something like this un path that i had imagined for myself um you know after i'd worked in china and i thought that was the pathway but i think one of the things my parents were very good at was encouraging the three of us children to be independent thinkers and to question the status quo and to question why things are the way they are and who's benefiting from things staying the same so we've always Sorry to interrupt oh, you, but how did you do that? Can you remember specifically any? I think they just hammered it home over and over again, you know. So, for example, there's a very popular, very common kind of thing that parents say in Australia. I'm not sure if you've had it in your upbringing too, Alex, but a, a child might say, oh, I want to go to a party. And the parents would say, well, why do you want to go? And the child might say, oh, because Chris is going. And the parent might say, well, if Chris was to jump off X bridge in my case would be the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Would you want to do that too? So it's this kind of idea of constantly throwing back at the child, tell me the exact reason why that's something as opposed to someone else just wants to do it. Yeah. And I remember, you know, as kids, we often watched movies and TV shows that were not mainstream as well. So, you know, art house and things that were not common because my parents would be like, oh, you know, this movie, which is, or this show, which is so popular, it's not actually good. Let's try and do something that involves a bit more thinking. So, yeah, I think they just kind of 
repetition is probably the answer to that question. I like that. I like that. But I think that's really interesting because I don't know, it's that fine line between we grow up and part of us obviously want to be part of the pack because that's like a human behavior. But then at the same time, you're trying to form your own identity and trying to be different than ever. It's it's a it, it's a weird thing when you mm. grow up that you're trying to do two things that are opposite. And then as a parent, you want them to fit in, but mm. you also want them to be unique. So it's a, it's a hard balance to to figure out. Yeah, and and that's extra complex with my background coming from an Eastern culture, living in a Western culture society right so you know western culture that's so individualistic and eastern that's so um kong that's what i'm looking for escape my mind um collectivist sorry so collectivist i think it's extra fascinating and probably quite impressive that my parents could come from that background and still uh promote independent thinking yeah um so yeah it's extra special yeah it's very very cool what did you, if you don't mind me asking, what do your brother, what do your brothers do? My eldest brother is a orthopedic surgeon. Oh. So the joke in our family is that when the eldest, so there's three boys, I'm the youngest uh, son. So when the eldest son becomes not just a doctor, but a surgeon, the parents don't mind what the rest of the kids do oh. because they're like, well, we've made it now. <laughs> we've achieved everything we need we to achieve. The bullet you... for all of you. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Um, my second brother is also a doctor, but he's PhD. So he's got a research background. Oh. And um, yeah, so I think both of them have, to a certain extent, had more stable careers in general. Um, but, you know, being the youngest as well, I think you do, again, stereotypes are true for a reason. You do get more leniency and more encouragement perhaps to go and chase more crazy dreams. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I remember living in Cambodia, the first place I lived in, because I didn't have a job yet and I was working, I was volunteering and my dad came to visit and he visited my, in inverted commas, home, which was just an attic in some house where literally it was, there was a roof and they just decided to build on top with corrugated iron, this con- construction, which they then rented out. Yeah, And he saw that I had a bucket shower and he saw the conditions I was living in and it reminded him of his childhood in Malaysia and how much he'd worked really hard for his children not to go through that. And I remember the look on his face and him saying, in essence, paraphrasing a bit, saying, you need to find a better place to live. In other words, no son of mine is going to grow up in the conditions that I've worked so hard to not put you in. And so obviously for my parents, seeing that was quite challenging because that wasn't what they wanted. But I think they also realized that I was going to do my own thing. And then eventually I'd find a way to make it work, not just for the passion that I had, but also for my well-being and for my sustainable lifestyle as well. Yeah, that's really funny. I actually have a similar story because my I'm from, so my parents are from Eastern Europe, which is maybe a little bit of the same, like... <laughs> discussion in the household and my granddad came and visited my first apartment that I had and I was into second hand so I bought all these things second hand and I showed him around and I showed him all the stuff and then afterwards he was he was quiet like he didn't say anything positive and he just said he had to speak to my mom and he then had a serious conversation with my mom about 
what I was doing with my life because I couldn't afford, you know, what was like, what was wrong with my career? I couldn't afford new furniture. And he was really worried about me because the same, like my granddad and my mom has worked so hard to be able to buy Mm. new things. Uh, And here I was buying old things and he just couldn't, he couldn't wrap his head around it. (laughs) I think that's really, that's always to me quite amusing though, about this, what people do when they're poor versus, you know, let's say middle versus wealthy. And I like cycling is a really good example. So you ride a bicycle if you can't afford a car in a developing country and then you can finally afford the car if you get wealthier. And then when, if you get really wealthy, you cycle with a obviously better bike. So it's like your granddad, maybe when, if he was not wealthy or seen people were not wealthy, they would have had secondhand furniture and then they got wealthier and they could afford new furniture and then you're even maybe more wealthier. So then you're like, we should do a second hand because it's better for the environment and so forth. But yeah, it's fascinating how these things loop around. Exactly. My mom has the same with cornbread when she was young, all they could eat was cornbread. And now we have this store that makes this organic cornbread Of course. that I bought one time. And my mom, she couldn't eat it. She was like, I refuse to eat this. How much did you pay for this? I'm not (laughs) eating it. And it's the same loop. Like, she couldn't eat it and then we're like middle and here I am thinking I'm all fancy yeah buying the cornbread for my mom (laughs) it is funny I think yeah having I mean having probably it sounds a bit similar to you having had those experiences that are you know unusual maybe culturally and having the clashes of east and west and that has really helped me to have different perspectives i think working in developing countries um one example so as i mentioned my great-grandparents are from china obviously i'm australian accent and um you probably can't tell but i'm i'm quite tall as well so when i go to asia i'm physically in some senses western as well and when i was in this orphanage in vietnam there was one celebration dinner they had and we had dinner together and there was noodles and i was using chopsticks and um one of the boys i remember said to me oh you can use chopsticks because he always like, you know, you're Australian, you can use chopsticks. And I was like, yeah, well, we kind of invented it. It's kind of my thing. Yeah. <laughs> How people invented it. It's really funny. So, yeah. What looks, looks really has an important thing in how you approach people, which is, which is a story all, all in itself. Mm. Um, because I, like you can probably see that I'm very blonde as well, yeah. which doesn't really go with the Eastern um, European mm. thing, um, which makes you land in quite interesting conversations sometimes. Um, mm. I've actually had this talk with my kids just a few days ago about how certain cultural things are okay to say um, if you are part of it, yep. but if you're not part of it, you cannot <laughs> say it. It's really hard to explain to like an eight-year-old. Uh-huh. Um, cause they have all different kids in their class. And she was saying, you know, I don't know, there was an, like an Arab that said something and there was yeah. a Jew that said something and then someone else said it and then it became this thing. And I don't know the reasoning behind it really than the fact that if you're part of it, you know, you have the, I don't know if you have the right license, it's, it, yeah, you yeah, have the license to maybe. kind of say it, but if you don't, yeah. But then yeah, if people look different. True. I mean, mm. if oh, if all you're judging people by are how they look, how do you know then like which side of the line to stand on? It's complicated. That's true. It's complicated. Yeah. I'm, and I think um, that, 
you know, sometimes, and this might be similar to you, but at various points in my life, I've sort of felt like I don't really fit. So maybe this comes back to your question about how did this happen? Like this path, which is certainly not traditional in some senses, but, you know, I never fit in my predominantly white classroom when I was growing up here. And then I'd go to China and I definitely didn't fit there because I couldn't speak the language for starters. And then Malaysia, um, you know, dressed differently, different. It, it's also fascinating when you have different body mannerisms. You can tell yeah. from that where someone grew up often. So not having that sense of, sorry, not ever fully fitting in any particular place, I think that's also helped me to think a bit more independently and be okay with the fact that I don't have to think like other people. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. So what has been your biggest surprise so far, maybe specifically in the book writing journey? I'm curious. Hmm. Well, um, I think I've, uh, this isn't really a surprise, but I've enjoyed writing and the process of writing and creativity is really great because it does help you to clarify your own thoughts. Yeah. Um, I guess I've been surprised by how much I've gotten out of the process and of talking to people. I interviewed a number of people for the book to get them to tell their story about how they're working in the way that I believe is a good way about making themselves redundant. And that in and of itself is enough, um, you know, benefit for me. If the book was not interesting to people or it didn't sell or people weren't interested in reading it or gave bad reviews or whatever, or maybe just disinterested, I think it already would have been enough. And part of the book for me is actually about providing hope and trying to provide um, alternatives to a system that we all kind of know is broken. So I think if you talk to anyone in the charity world, particularly those who have done this for a long time, there's just a lot of complaining and and rightfully so, you know, oh, we have to do this thing for the donor, it's terrible. We have to do this report, it's awful. Um, we, we can't pay ourselves salaries. We can't pay overheads. We're constantly fundraising for overheads. The same kind of like problems that crop up all the time. But my question is often like, what are we going to do about it? And is there anything that we can do? And maybe if there were options and alternatives, people would find that a hopeful message. And so that's been my intention with the book and in the process of writing it and talking to these people that are working in really inspiring ways that are going against every um, part of this sector and going against all the incentives in the sector that create these problems, that has been probably the biggest gift for me is to feel inspired again about nonprofits. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I love that. I love that. It's a, it's a story of inspiration and hope. Um, because we think with so many things, we think we can't do anything about it. But most mm. of the time in 2023, in most countries, at least the countries that you and me are in, mm. we can do something about most things if you're, yeah. you know, if you're honest about it. Yeah. How would you, if I, if I'm going to use this moment to ask for advice, actually, <laughs> how would you, um, how would you advise someone that I have a friend, she has an artisan company in a very difficult country. Um, and she was born there as a, as a white woman. Um, but she, her whole thing is like, how can she take herself out of it? Mm. But it's very difficult because the market isn't really in the country. And the country doesn't have much of a social system. You know, the government is fraud. There's no 
banks really that works, like nothing works. How would you go about trying to at least, I don't know, at least set some kind of goal to get out of a situation like that? Yeah, so since since I've been doing a number of book events after publishing, the most common question I get asked is something along the lines of how can charities make themselves redundant when things are so bad? Yeah. You know, there are so many complex problems out there that require big solutions and it's not possible for a charity to make themselves redundant. And I think there are sort of two responses to that. The first is to try and break the problem down to something that's bite-sized and achievable for a charity to actually address. Because as much as charities think that or like to talk about the fact that they can solve huge problems, they really can't. You know, charities say, oh, we want to solve world hunger, but you're not going to do that on a $100 million budget. No. Or um, So trying to break it down to something that they can solve either smaller in scope or smaller in geography. They're the sort of ideas. And then the second thing I think is thinking about the end and keeping the end in mind. So what are the things that we want to see when the charity is done in order for us to say that we were able to make ourselves redundant? We're not going to be needed anymore. And I think this is counterintuitive to a lot of the, let's say, smaller, more reactive kind of charities where it might be a teacher who goes into a a poor country and says, oh, there's a real lack of teaching here. Maybe I can, for example, bring teachers from Australia across to this country and do, you know, 12-week trips, et cetera, et cetera. So what they're essentially doing is bringing the solution that they are comfortable with rather than thinking about the end product that they want to see. It's very much like this, you know, to every man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail uh, approach. Yeah. Um, but I think if you start with the end in mind, you're more likely to get to a point where you're not actually needed anymore. And then you find the resources to get there as opposed to using the resources that you have to try and solve this huge problem. So what in that example, what would you, what could be some things that the teacher, for example, could have done instead? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a convenient example. I think the first thing they could probably do is do a bit more scoping around, yeah. you know, what exists already in country? What other initiatives are there? Um, what's the actual problem? What's the government doing about it? Who could take on this work after I leave? Yeah. And, that, and that's the key thing, right? That as much as we don't want to face this, charities do have to shut down at some point. Programs do have to exit other countries. So we might as well try and set up our exits to be intentional. Yeah. rather than to be accidental. Um, in the book, there's, a, there's a, a study that I quote that looked at the two key reasons why charities tend to exit countries. And reason number one, host government and donor government no longer get along. So the US is like, oh, no, I'm not, we're not going to fund any more programs in this country because we're not friends anymore. Yeah. And the second one is running out of money. Yeah. So both of these, these reasons are um, external to the mission and the work of the charity. So I guess my point is we might as well try and set up this exit so that when we do leave, it's intentional and we're not leaving people in a complete mess. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess it also brings in this, uh, not to go down a rabbit hole, but the difference between maybe charity and aid. I think Mm. a lot of people that think about charity maybe think about aid and like the catastrophe that we're in, Mm -hmm. you know, right now, which then obviously maybe something of anything is good but then you see the problems in countries where they have that aid approach and maybe there was a war i don't know 20 years Mm -hmm. ago but it's still that same approach in the thinking 
But that, I mean, that, even that example of humanitarian aid or disasters, you know, it, we are often faced with these crises and we do respond to them, but I would say also say react to them too. Yeah. And that does create problems too, right? Because a lot of funding is then diverted from things that should maybe go into other areas that are equally worthy. Yeah. Um, and then there is a whole area around, let's say, disaster preparedness, which has worked really beautifully in a lot of countries in um, Asia, I'm aware of. Um, yeah. So, you know, I guess still thinking at least about the root causes and trying to focus on that, which is not to say that, you know, humanitarian aid is not a worthwhile cause or, you know, Medicine Sans Frontiers don't do good work. It's not that at all. But it is t- trying to think a little bit also about how do we get ahead of these problems so that the impact of this disaster is minimised yeah. when it does inevitably come about? Or how do we address the root causes of whatever is starting this issue? Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. And I mean, I think we see a little bit more of that now when at least people are trying to organise you know, I don't know what to take as an example, but a flood or something, automatically people start sending like shoes in all different sizes to people. And then you end up with a, you know, like a mountain of trash of textiles that no one used. And then, Mm. you know, at least now you can see people are trying to organize a little bit, like maybe it's better to transfer money or I don't know, hoses or something to like actually pull the water out of the, you know, Mm. we have this in, in like, this reaction of like always giving, like you said, giving what we have, mm. not thinking about something simple as sizes. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a there's a whole spectrum of things that can be done, right? So the things that often come to mind first are generally not necessarily the things that are going to be that helpful in the long run. No. So again, it's about taking that moment in between reaction and action to think about okay let's think critically about how best to solve this issue yeah so how on this journey and with the book writing and having this big vision of you know changing the world uh how do you manage to also take care of yourself in the in the midst of it all it's a good question i think in the past it's been a bigger issue than it is now i don't know if it's just something that happens as you age a bit and you start to realize that your body just can't be flogged year on year and get away with it. Um, but I think one of the things for me is to make sure that my identity is not wrapped up just in my work. Yeah. And what I've found in the past when it was that way, work would go really well and I'd feel great about myself and then work would go really poorly and I'd feel bad about myself too. And that's just not sustainable. So it is about separating identity from the thing that you're passionate about and there are, there are three very simple ways I did that historically and continue to do it, I guess. But the three ways are being in places where your work identity doesn't matter. That's the yeah. gist of it. So the first one is being around kids. You know, you've got children yourself. So yeah. being around kids because your kids and your nephews and nieces, they don't care no. how many awards you've won. You're just like a silly adult to play with. So that's the first thing. Being in nature is the second thing because nature doesn't care how many awards you've won. And the third thing is playing sport as well, you know, being particularly team sport, I think as well, because out there you could be a successful social entrepreneur or not, and it doesn't really matter. And you're in the moment at the time. So they're just some of the strategies that I've used. Those are really, really good. I love those. Uh, I think I used them as well a lot myself. Um, They're really useful. Thank you for that. Thanks. Um, And what lights you up? I think... 
as as I kind of you know in in my journey it, back in the day twenty years ago when I was working as a physiotherapist I got to see the the person who was the result of the work day to day and I could see how they improved and these incredible stories of people you know getting better and becoming more functional and going out to the community and that was really gratifying of course to see that but as you move further and further away from that and you know my current role we have sixty people working with us and I'm quite removed obviously from the day to day you have to find other ways to get that gratification to light yourself up. Yeah. Um, but the the main one for me is having a vision for something and starting something and then seeing people come along and take have their own take on it, you know, and really mould it the way that they want it, but obviously aligned with the values that you have and with the original intention and then running with it and doing something really beautiful with it that you would never, of course, be able to do by yourself. And that's the that's the thing that you can do you can have that feeling as a founder. It's a very specific type of feeling because yeah. um, you're the only one who knows what it was like at the beginning yeah. when it was just an idea in your head. Um, so, yeah, in my, in my current day job, the thing that takes up the most time, Umbo, where, yeah, we are growing. We're adding 30 to 40 people every year. Just seeing the quality of people come on and the way in which they're passionate about the same things, but also their approaches are quite different and they've got ideas that, you know, I would, never have had wow and then on the in the opposite on the opposite side of the spectrum what makes <laughs> you angry oh so much i think we're going to run out of time if i'm going to list everything but it's probably i think it's the i think it's the entrenched inequalities the things yeah. that don't really seem to change you know i mean to use a specific example that's probably very common where you are as well but housing yeah. affordability you know that's just it's just madness at the moment and the implications are very severe and inequalities, you know, getting worse in Australia at least. Um, and yet, you know, you've got some MPs that are not members of parliament, they're not interested in changing laws. And then they did a study that looked into, so they just did some investigation and they found that some of these MPs have 19 houses of their own. You know, you just kind of think, do. well, who needs, why do you need so many houses? You don't need that. Um, so, that to me is, a, yeah, it's infuriating that people could sleep at night knowing that they're contributing so significantly to making the world worse. And I think it's good to be angry, by the way. Like it's a very good, it, it's fuel yeah. because it makes me, um, no matter how badly my day is going and how many things are wrong, how many clients are complaining or whatever, or someone's written a bad review for the book or whatever, you can still come back to the fact that at the end of the day, you think or you believe at least that, you're making that world just that little bit better every day, every year that you're around, yeah. um, that ties it together. I think it was a Nietzsche quote. He said that um, um, whoever has a uh, why to live can bear almost any how. Yeah. So, you know, I think coming back to that why, like why am I doing this and why is it important to me, um, then you can survive pretty much anything. That's beautiful. And what on when we're on these journeys of maybe impact work or entrepreneurial work, there is mm. often all this talk about you got to say you know yes to everything. Everything is an opportunity, yeah. but what we don't often talk about is what we have to say no to. What have you had to say no to to be able to do what you're doing? Oh, so many things. Yeah, I think that's a really good question and a really good point. Um, you. 
I think, yeah, as you become, as you get older and as you have more responsibilities, becoming more clear about what you say no to is actually more important. And along the same lines, feeling friction to things. So um, recently we were, I was trying to help organize this particular event and it just wasn't working. We're putting in so much effort, so many hours, and the ticket sales weren't going up at all. And I woke up one morning, I'm like, why are we doing this? This is just the universe telling us it's not the right time. Let's just not do it. And I think back in the day, if I was in my early 30s or 20s, definitely, I would have been like, no, we need to do it. It must feel hard because if it's if it feels hard, it's something worth doing. Yeah. And I don't agree with that now. I think it's like it should actually feel easy. If it feels hard, you're doing it the wrong way. Yeah. You're either, you know, wrong time, wrong approach. So I think saying no is very much linked to that, is that um, you, you, you have to say no to things that don't fit your agenda, like what it is that you want to achieve. And so being very specific about opportunities um, and saying no as they come. So for me, it's been, you know, um, would you like to come to this event? Would you like to be part of this um, panel? Or would you like to be involved in this project? Would you like to be an advisor, this kind of thing? Um, you know, they've come up every now and then. I wouldn't say particularly often, but sometimes uh, it just doesn't really fit with what I'm trying to get done. And it would take me away from something else that's more important. Yeah. And I think also on, on on top of that, what also comes along is a lot of requests. It's almost like the more stuff you do, the more requests come that you do things for free, mm-hmm. which is like a whole other conversation. Um, but that always baffles me because I work a lot with startups and scale ups. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they have a lot of funding and they, you know, they have a lot of money. Uh, but for some reason, they always expect senior advisors to come in and help them for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, uh, I think that's an interesting story because I think. And then you said, the, sorry. Oh, then you said the precedent though. You make it harder for other people who want to make a living. So I think it's really important to be able to say no. Exactly. Exactly. And I really, uh, align with what you say about, about it feeling easy as well. Yeah. Um, because I used to be an elite swimmer before oh. I retired and uh, our coaches always said like the best races are the ones that feel like you barely swam mm. so the races where you like push really hard and you fight against the water you're actually swimming much slower as opposed to when you're like they always said be friends with the water um those are the yeah. races that you win uh, and not when it feels hard so that's something that i often you know try to think back on like the best races were the easy ones and not the hard ones that's funny because um, my partner and I recently began training and we had to stop because someone got injured But uh, for a triathlon. And it was then, and I haven't done much swimming as an adult, but it was then that I realized that I'm probably the world's worst swimmer. <laughs> so just did everything I could to avoid being in the pool because it was um, similar to what you said. You know, I tried to kind of do that thing where you glide through the water and keep your heart rate low. And then I'd get to the other end and my heart rate would be like 180. <laughs> I barely moved. <laughs> so something's like, like swimming, you should just say no. If you're a terrible swimmer like me, just don't bother. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe it's not worth the effort. It's not. The benefit in the triathlon though is pre- percentage-wise, the swimming is really quite small. Is it? Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. I was thinking about just doing a biathlon instead, just cut the swimming out completely. Yeah, that's that's my next thought. <laughs> you could do that too. So um, I also like to ask this question. If you, if you think back to your childhood, what was one thing that you loved doing 
that you wish you had more time doing as an adult? This is probably a very cliched answer, but I'll say unstructured play. Um, You know, it's just the best. Spending time outside, climbing trees with my siblings and, um, you know, playing with the kids down the street and not really having any sort of set agenda. And this is the problem as an adult is you have more responsibilities, unfortunately, and more things need to be scheduled. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day in relation to sleep as well, because I was having this thought about, remember how easy it was to fall asleep when you're 11 years old and like how hard it is to do it when you're in your 40s and probably gets harder maybe. But, um, you know, and back then I didn't have like an eye mask and melatonin and, you yeah. know, lockout curtains and uh, earplugs and whatever else, you know, and, and turning on my phone at a particular time. Um, but also at the same time, you didn't have responsibilities. No. So, of course, it was like less weight on your shoulders. But I think that unstructured time and having less and slash no responsibilities is something that kind of do yearn for. And now that you've asked the question, there's definitely the possibility of doing it. So now I'm asking myself, why don't I actually do that? Yeah. No, I think that unstructured time is really important. I actually spoke to um, Abby Pantano that you know Mm. of as well. Yeah. And we talked about that and she said how uh, some of her best ideas come when she's out on a bushwalk. Mm. So, I mean, That's there's true. so much to that. Just because we we sit in front of a screen doesn't mean anything good actually comes out at the other end. Well, th- this is where Abby and I are different because bushwalks are still structured time for me because I'm counting all my exercise. metrics on my smartwatch. Oh, you, need yeah. to get up. you need to leave the watch at home. <laughs> That's true. Um, I'd, I'd feel like I was naked, but I guess I could give it a crack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so what is one simple thing that you would advise a listener to do um, that they could do today if they wanted to do something positive for humanity or for the planet? Huh, that is such a hard question to answer. What's one specific thing they could do? I mean, I, I do think that, okay, I'm going to say that spending a bit of time creating self-awareness is actually one of the most important things because when we talk about inequality and we talk about power dynamics, you can't have an understanding of all of that stuff unless you understand where you fit. I'm not really sure what that one activity would be. I guess there are many different ways to achieve it, but anything where the outcome would be a form of self-awareness and Interestingly enough, prior to writing this book, I was doing a little bit of very amateur, I will say, stand-up comedy. And people at the time were sort of asking, you know, what's surely you need to have a really good sense of humor and you need to have bravery and you need to have, I don't know, whatever. And um, all of those things are true. But I still really believe that the number one skill is self-awareness in stand-up. You have to understand how the audience perceives you, how you come across, and then, you know, what you are like in certain situations that you can then relay back to the audience if that's your type of humor that is. Yeah. So yeah, I think self-awareness goes a long way. That's a, that's a really good answer. I like that a lot. Um, so how can we, me and the listener, how can we support you in any way? I mean, I think I would love people to read the book at this stage. So uh, if they're not up for reading the book, there's a TEDx talk that I did a few years ago, which is along the same lines. So it's called Why International Charities Should Make Themselves Redundant. And yeah, so that was kind of the the start of thinking about the book. It was about 
maybe five years ago. Um, and then the book is redundantcharities.com. Uh, there's a free sample on there. You can also find it on Amazon, all sorts of places as well. Um, but yeah, I think spending a bit of time thinking about these ideas, for me, that's really something that I'm quite passionate about because part of the um, reason why I sat down to write the book was firstly, we were in lockdown, so there's nothing else to do. But so secondly, write a book. <laughs> yeah, you know, rather than having unstructured time. Exactly. Um, so um, yeah, I think was also thinking about the legacy that uh, the impact that I can have, you know, and I think books and ideas like this have a long way to go. Um, this is another tangent, but I've become really amazed since I published a book at how much self-help there is as a genre in nonfiction. I mean, I kind of knew it, but I guess I wasn't really looking that closely like I am now. And it's absolutely incredible. Self-help as a genre is just huge and it's yeah. a percentage of nonfiction books. And I'm not against self-help. I think self-help is important. Of course, I mentioned self-awareness and so on as well, but it is slightly disappointing, I think, to see that kind of ratio Yeah, because self-help sort of puts the onus on the individual to create change in the world, whereas books like Redundant Charities talk about the structural issues as to why changes, why things are the way they are yeah. and then how we can make it better through affecting structural change. And I think for us to move forward as, as humanity, but even more simply in the charity sector or social impact, having places where we can question why things are the way they are and then potentially yeah. some solutions to move forward, that's really important too. It can't all just be about how to make yourself a better leader or a better communicator. Yeah. That's a really good point to just close off with a, an example, an environmental example. Mm. Um, in Sweden, we're very good at recycling. <clears throat> And we have a tendency to think that, oh, oh, you know, me, Alex, I'm such a good recycler. Like, I don't throw anything in the trash bin. But the only reason we are is because this structurally been implemented. So mm. it's super easy. No one has to walk anywhere. It's right out of your door. They come like clockwork every mm. three days. We have factories that turn the trash into energy. You know, mm. it's this whole system. Uh, it's not necessarily that me, the Swede, is any better than anyone else. It's a perfect example yeah. of a system that works. And I yeah. think, like you say, those stories, um, I think, are really important to get out there because then only then we can realize how important that is. And it's not all on an individual level. Yeah, that's a great example. And someone sat down and dreamt up that system one day and then it was eventually implemented. So it's a great example. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Wei, for being here and for taking the time. It's been a, a lovely conversation and I could have chatted much longer. Um, Me too. But thank you so much for giving us the time and for letting us know ways that we can do something that matters. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex, for having me. Thank you for using your precious time to listen to the We Are All Needed podcast. And if you find the podcast valuable, please rate, review, and most importantly, share this episode so that we can spread more goodness out there in the world. If you want to work with me, find out more about the guests or the community, please jump on over to www.thecircularentrepreneurs.com. Until next time.